I love the seeming contradiction found in the second part of the prophet Isaiah. I'm sure you perhaps have thought about it. In Isaiah 46 and verse 9, uh, there are these words, if I can move on. Here we are. Remember the former things, those long ago, for I am God and there is no other. Whilst only three chapters earlier, the prophet has enthusiastically declared these words. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? And it is an ancient double call. A call for God's people in whatever context they find themselves to learn to do two things well at the same time. The first is to learn to remember well. Remember the former things. And this is what we've heard read in this final part of the book of Esther. The hero of the book, Mordecai, now seeks to ensure that all the Jews within the empire will never forget this remarkable period of history that some of us have been following over the last 10 weeks. And he does it by decreeing a festival called Purim. And the second thing God calls his people to do is to recognise that in his unfolding plan of salvation, God actually never quite works the same way twice. And it is a call not only to remember well, but to perceive well. That though there will be continuity for sure, for God's character and overarching purpose for creation never changes, God is also a pilgrim God, a God who is always breaking new ground. And this too is part of the purpose of Esther. For behind the book that we've been studying is of course a brilliant storyteller, almost certainly a Jew, who has chosen quite deliberately, it seems to me, to recount this period without reference to God. Why? We don't know. But quite possibly, so that we, the readers, are encouraged, like those times in Esther, to be constantly attentive to what is going on around us. And to see, in our attentiveness, traces of the unseen potter's hand, shaping history, shaping people, shaping outcomes. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? So first is a call to remember well. And here I go back to a picture that I should have put later on in the sequence. 
It was actually the Jewish holiday of Purim three weeks ago. Uh, the 13th day of the month of Adar in the Jewish calendar and Sunday March the 12th for us. And Rosalind Heim kindly showed Fiona Barnard and me a copy of The Guardian on the Monday morning of this wonderful picture of a, of a London synagogue on March the 12th this year. Do you not like it? Fiona and I laughed and laughed and laughed. She showed me the picture and said, what is this a picture of? And I wasn't sure. Later on, I thought I should have said a Reformed Baptist Conference. But I then thought it might be David, David Harrison and his department, having just heard they've got a new university grant or something like that. But isn't it a wonderful picture? And it is a wonderful depiction, is it not, of how ridiculously extravagant and embarrassingly uninhibited is the Purim festival of the Jews. After all, Haman got his canuppance, didn't he? After all, Mordecai was vindicated, Esther was honoured, and the Jewish diaspora, diaspora miraculously have been saved from genocide. Why not dance the night away? Every year, of course, the book of Esther, as we've just heard being read, is read aloud. And the synagogue congregation typically boo every time Haman's name is read out. One Talmudic source says there is so much wine drunk by certain members of the congregation during Purim that some are so well oiled they cannot tell the difference between curse be Haman and bless be Mordecai, a practice not to be followed. So for those of you who are joining us tonight and have not been part of this series, and for each other, let's just remind ourselves for a moment of this roller coaster journey that we've been on. The story is set in 5th century BC Persian Empire with its 127 provinces from India to Egypt. King Xerxes, both vain and impressionable, ruled this empire with an iron rod, like an iron rod. His queen stands up to him, as we heard in the first week with Fiona, and she is summarily dumped. In her place comes a young virgin called Hadassah or Esther. She is bright, she is beautiful, and equally courageous. But she comes with a dangerous secret. She is a Jewess. The adopted daughter of a Jew called Mordecai. And hardly had the coronation been concluded when disaster strikes. A foreigner called Haman, and you may boo if you wish, inexplicably comes to power as the king's number two. When Mordecai refuses to bow to him out of both injured pride and tapping into his own anti-Jewish heritage, 
Haman gets the king to agree to an empire-wide purge of all Jews. Ethnic cleansing on a colossal scale is agreed. But Haman is superstitious. He pauses to cast lot to see which day this massacre could possibly happen. This poor, this pooing. And he finds out when it should happen. It is the 13th day of Adar, many months away. What is more, he builds gallows for Mordecai, who he so hates. Esther realizes now as queen that she must act. She has come to power for such a time as this. And so she organizes two banquets to reveal her own secret and to expose Haman's evil. Meanwhile, the king has discovered that Mordecai is owed a national debt for saving his life from a plot of assassination. Haman turns up and to his horror is assigned the task of fating Mordecai, the very person he most loathes. It really wasn't his best day, he explains to his wife. <laughs> then Esther tells all. Haman is hanged. The gallows built for Mordecai are used. And Mordecai becomes prime minister instead of Haman. The whole story, a true story, is one brilliantly crafted, delicious example of poetic justice. Although an edict from a Persian king can never be revoked, and so the edict to slaughter the Jews stands, Mordecai is allowed to draft an alternative edict. And in this edict, the Jews are given the right not only to gather and defend themselves, but to put to death those who would choose to attack them. And so, as we read with Lindsay a few minutes ago, and if you have a Bible, look at those first opening words. Chapter 9, verse 1. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. No wonder Jews then and now can dance and drink the night away. And here's, here's um, another wonderful picture of Purim. I just love that. And the guy at the back who looks as, as though he really has had enough. Uh, what great pictures. So although God has not been mentioned in this story, something quite remarkable has happened. Surely we are led to conclude the unseen hand of God has been delivering his people, vindicating Mordecai, blessing Esther, preserving the witness of Israel. This is a day to remember well. It's interesting to note the book of Esther 
has a focus on feasting all the way through our wonderful stories of banquets. It starts with this vain, opulent, seven-day banquet of the king. And the book ends with the Jewish diaspora feasting and dancing in gratitude for the unseen hand of God that has preserved them. A meal of gratitude by the people of God. Now, of course, part of remembering well is to remember accurately. And there are features here that disturb us. We are told, as we read, that the citadel of Susa had 500 men who were murdered, chapter 9, verse 6. We are told that Haman's sons were all murdered. Queen Esther then agrees on a second day of slaughter where 300 more were killed and the bodies of Haman's sons were publicly exposed. And then we are told that in total, throughout the empire, 75,000 were killed. It's not comfortable reading and it requires comment. I was telling Fiona a remarkable thing that happened to me this week. On Friday we had a little preacher's team meeting and they kindly agreed to uh, look at Esther 9 with me to help me in my last minute preparation for tonight, which was a helpful discussion. And after that I had an appointment with someone who um, wanted to talk about the Christian faith. This was an older man who is uh, not a Christian, quite sceptical, and I'd arranged to meet up with him. So I arranged to meet up with him, and he said, well, I have many problems about the Christian faith, but let's start where I really want to start, with Esther chapter 9. <laughs> and I nearly fell off my seat. <laughs> I think he fell off his suite when I then produced a commentary on Esther that was in my rucksack. <laughs> and we had a good talk about the very point I'm now making. Let me just make three comments as we move on. First, we can debate this, but whatever our first impression, it seems to be unfair to see this as wanton slaughter. This was about vulnerable Jews in exile who had been harassed and threatened for months, years, and were now acting in pure defence. The edict had not been revoked by Haman and the king. And fighting to the death was indeed the only option. If you look at verse 2, they were allowed to attack those, notice, determined to destroy them. We have no idea what the Jewish casualties was, were, but what we do know is that if Haman's wish had been fulfilled, hundreds of thousands of Jews would have been slaughtered throughout the empire. There are strong hints that from early on in this book, there was a deep, latent anti-Semitism smouldering throughout the empire. 
And it seems that Haman's edict was in fact welcomed. Many, it seems, were rubbing their hands with delight, just waiting for the 13th day of Adar. And when it says in verse 5, they did what they pleased to those who hated them, I do not think this is meant to be read as an orgy of unrestrained violence. In its context, it simply seems to me to be saying that the Jews were given a free hand without state interference. So that was the first point I made to my friend <laughs> and I make to you. The second is that the Jewish slaughter here of their enemies was a disciplined act. It's interesting, if you look back to chapter 8 and verse 11, it includes the words, they can plunder the property of their enemies. But quite deliberately, the author in chapter 9, three times says, when it comes to the slaughter, this is what they did not do. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. There was something very disciplined about this. They did not kill women. They did not kill children. They did not slaughter the general populace. They only put to death those who were trying to annihilate them. Now having said that, it is generally agreed that there is an implied criticism of Esther when she comes to request a second day of vengeance. It does seem that she has overstepped the mark. And as Steve Holmes said the other week, we are not meant in scripture just to agree with everything we read. People made mistakes regularly in scripture and scripture faithfully records that. Some of the Persians had come over to the <coughs> Jews for protection once they knew that Mordecai had come to power. And one writer puts it like this, we may have here an example of ethical irony. At the very point where Persians are becoming Jews, Jews begin to act like Persians. And at the very least, however we interpret this passage of Esther chapter 9, as Christians, with a fuller revelation in Jesus Christ, we know that God's heart is for a better way, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So here's the first thing, remember well. And the second ancient call from Isaiah, to perceive well. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? The book of Esther is quietly subversive. For the context is of a deeply superstitious culture where religion and fatalism feed off one another. Haman, as we've already commented, felt the need to cast a lot to decide when this slaughter, this genocide, was to happen. And yet, here in this deeply superstitious culture, 
is an exiled people who believe that there is an unseen but very real personal presence guiding them and protecting them. It occurred to me as I was reading through the book of Esther again this week that the storyteller is almost teasing the culture by not naming God. But the author's God places people in key positions in society. The author's God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. The author's God lets the enemy overstep themselves and then defeats them. God had delivered his people from the plague, by the plagues in Egypt and a miraculous sea crossing that we come to celebrate in the Passover and what we will now celebrate tonight as the fulfillment of that. God had delivered his people from exile in Babylon. And now God is doing a new thing, celebrated here in Purim. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? So roll on 500 years. Roll on to what we were celebrating with Mike this morning. Here is the scene tonight of Palm Sunday. The Jewish people are again under enormous pressure. The oppressors now are not anti-Semitic Persians, but they are Roman overlords. The streets are lined with weary Jewish nationals crying out, Hosanna, oh God, save us, deliver us. Lord, we remember Passover. Lord, we remember Purim. Do it again, Lord. And of course, the story of Palm Sunday is that they remembered well, but they did not perceive well. In fact, John's Gospel tells us that even the disciples did not understand what was going on that day. Those who lined the streets of Jerusalem did not see the new thing that God was doing. He had indeed brought somebody for such a time as this. Paul says when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to rescue those under the law. They did not see that as Jesus rides on a lowly donkey into the city of Zion, that God is indeed, as in the story of Esther, humbling the proud and exalting the humble. They did not see that day on Palm Sunday that the enemy had indeed overstretched himself. And as Jesus died on the cross, he was in fact disarming the powers and authority and making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. The story of Esther is just part of a much bigger story. It is the bigger story that deliverance is offered by God not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. It is the bigger story 
that enemies are not to be slaughtered by the sword, but are to be loved and prayed for. It is the bigger story that it is not another Mordecai who the world needs, wielding enormous political power. It is a Messiah that the world needs, who dies in weakness and rises by the power of God and now reigns by the Spirit in the weakness and the foolishness of communities of the cross. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you perceive it and so finally to being salt and light in today's society well we've heard a lot haven't we over these last weeks and we're grateful to David and to others who have shared both from Esther and from their own experiences and many of us were very challenged last Sunday night by Graham Bell's story of prison ministry. But as we come to the end of this series on being salt and light, it is a call to remember well and to perceive well. To remember well who we are. We are children of light. We are ambassadors of a different king. We are citizens of a different kingdom. And simply in the confidence and the security of remembering well who we are in Jesus Christ, wherever he has placed us, to live that out <coughs> with confidence and with grace. And to perceive well. I enjoyed... Graham's answer to Sam's question at the end of last Sunday, well, what are we meant to do? And his answer was very interesting. He said, read your newspapers with a new critical eye. Do not assume that what the powerful say is always right. Do not assume that what the editors write is always true. To perceive well. God keeps doing new things. What is happening in our world around us? Could it be that the enemy is overstretching himself and new victories are going to come in the name of God? As a church, what is God calling us to be? I was grateful to David for challenging us about whether a community like ours can really handle a genuine welcome of people whose views and values are radically different to ours, but we welcome them in Jesus' name and believe the power of the gospel is sufficient for transformation to happen. May it be that, as with Purim, we'll remember who we are in Christ. And may it be that we will perceive the new things that God continues to do and enjoy the adventure of seeing 
what he's up to. Let's pray together. Gracious, loving, almighty God, we bow before you and as we listen to this ancient story where your name is not mentioned once, we see your mysterious and wonderful working in this part of history. And Lord, tonight as we bow here, we acknowledge that you are the Lord and you are at work. Help us to remember what you have done in the past, but help us to perceive what you are doing perhaps very differently in the world today, all through Jesus Christ to whom be all the glory, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.